Hello and welcome to the Unheard Weekly Podcast with me, Aisha Hazarika. This is the podcast uh, where you can hear about stories which our guests think are important but somewhat underreported in the mainstream media. We also have a section at the end called Heroes and Villains, which is slightly self-explanatory. I'm delighted to be joined by two brilliant uh, guests this week, Helen Lewis, Deputy Editor of The New Statesman, and Liam Halligan, Telegraph columnist, Unheard contributor and a fellow panellist with my good self on a show called CNN Talk on CNN International. Always in your wake, Haisha. <laughs> always, always. We've actually, like, we clash a lot on our TV show and we've now clashed in person today because I'm wearing a red shirt and Liam has a pink thing on and it's just all clashing, so that's going to be the thing. Helen, welcome to you. Hello, I was going to say, that won't matter to the listeners, luckily. It's not that they were going, my eyes are bleeding. Oh, this is why I'm getting this podcasting wrong. It's <laughs> like, you know, it's like anyone. Right. Helen, we're going to come to you first for your underreported story of the week. So this is about Mumsnet, which, as you know, is a fair, as you might expect from the name, a forum for for mothers. Um, and it's done a, a big thing about language and gender, which I think is really interesting. Now, I know this will probably elicit groans from some listeners because it is a subject that is absolutely mired in people, you know, talk about angels dancing on the head of a pin. But I think it's a really important story. So what, um, Mumsnet have come under a lot of attack because any place that you gather a lot of women together who've been through a big experience based around their physical bodies, you know, these are a lot of women who've got episiotomies and are having difficulty with breastfeeding. And that you know, and their career's been screwed over, and that's the, those are the kind of things that people talk about on Mumsnet. So, understandably, they feel quite radicalised about what a female body does to your you know prospects in life, and kind of being told that that's irrelevant. We shouldn't talk about that anymore. It's exclusionary. I mean, today, and this just, is all in the context of the transgender yeah. debate. So today, um, Cancer Research UK have, uh, did a tweet talking about cervical screening is important for everyone with a cervix. So they won't say woman anymore, they will just say everyone with a cervix. And you're like, well, fairly self-obviously, like, if you don't have a cervix, you're not going to need cervical screening. So what is this, lang- you know, what is this kind of linguistic well, you might want to go, because it's such a pleasurable experience, Maybe Helen, isn't it? So relaxing, right? so relaxing. Um, <laughs> yes, exactly. So what they've done is that basically this became a kind of really big place for people to talk about trans issues and about gender and therefore provoked a big backlash from trans activists who were saying, you know, there's lots of people using very hateful terms there, very hurtful ways of talking about people. So there's been a huge amount of pressure on the advertisers particularly. At the same time, their users are saying, well, look, this is one of the only places that we can really talk about this. It's not something that gets aired a lot. And, and certainly, I, you know, somebody who's read up on it to a, let's be honest now, quite alarming degree, the level of understanding it in the, in the among normal people, because this stuff has moved so so fast is is really quite low. So they've they've banned some really hurtful phrases like saying someone's a trans-identified male. This is basically saying that someone who's a trans woman is not a woman. They will always be male. Therefore, it's you know there's always you know they will they will never be a real woman. And I think that is fair enough to say that is quite offensive. But they've also banned turf, which is a, a term that I get thrown at me on Twitter, which means trans-exclusionary radical feminist, which doesn't describe my politics at all. But it's basically become another word for which it's become. You have some opinions that are out of step with where the ideology is in this, and we want to. Just just dismiss you out of hand. Uh, and more interestingly, I think they banned the use of the word, or they said they will sometimes restrict the use of the word cis, which I think is more interesting. So this is a word that originally arose to mean not transgender, but now is used to mean identifies with the sex they were assigned at birth. And I have a huge problem with that as a feminist because I don't really believe... I'm agnostic on the idea of gender identity, that there is anything innate in my soul that makes me want to wear high heels, want to be paid less, you know, want to be patronised by men on the internet. And so I don't like this whole concept that actually I'm happy with my gender. I'm really not. Like the whole concept of gender I find really quite irritating. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's interesting because it's moved from a, 
you know, everybody should be called what they want to, to actually the backlash of this is saying, we know you have to call yourself cis, is about then really who owns language. And I think that's why for everybody, even people who find this particular issue boring or intricate or think, God, why is the left eating itself? It is actually really big and really important. It's very interesting about how this debate has um, kind of unfolded because Justine Roberts, who runs Mumsnet, really you know, fought back against some of the criticisms that Mumsnet was being transphobic. And she said, look, we're a forum for women to have a really honest debate and we want to have free speech. We want people to be able to really say what, what, whatever they want. Now, she's slightly conceded now and said, look, there, there, there has been a bit of a problem, hence them introducing um, some of these principles. But I... My reading of the of the debate, and Liam, I'll come to you in a minute because I know you've, you'll have sort of thoughts on this as well. I feel like the debate ha- has got so aggressive sort of on both sides. It's actually quite difficult now to have any kind of kind of rational discussion about it. I'm really sympathetic to people in the transgender community who feel that people are kind of wildly offensive to them. Mm. And I was I was looking back through some of the old speeches of Margaret Thatcher making the Section 28 stuff. And, you know, there was a sort of moral panic that, you know, all children were going to now become homosexual. And now there's, I feel there's a little bit of a moral panic sometimes with, with how we approach the transgender debate. But on the other hand, some of the language that is hurled back to women, I find incredibly um, awful as well. This turf thing, you're right, it's also kind of designed to really say to older women, shut up, and your kind of lived experience as a woman suddenly doesn't count for anything. And as Helen and I, Liam, has uh, daughters, your your lived experience growing up as a girl and a young woman is incredibly important in shaping your experiences um, as a human being who is a woman. Mm. Um, So, I mean, I'm kind of sitting on the fence, but I feel like the debate on both sides has got really, really toxic. Liam? Yeah, I have two daughters and their mum is Lucy Ward, who's uh, written a lot about this um, in The the Guardian and elsewhere. Um, I think Helen's phrase... This is about who owns language is very, very important, really hits the nail on the head for me. Um, it's been quite, um, um, I wouldn't say upsetting, but it's just been, as, as, a, as a guy looking on it, who's sympathetic to a lot of these debates and and very much supports what Justine Roberts has done with Mums Now, what a brilliant idea, mm. how brilliantly executed, what a canny nose for publicity, uh, what a deft political touch, and she has reigned conceded slightly i thought it was a shame as somebody who you know was given uh, the female eunuch by girlfriends at university and read it and thought it was absolutely amazing yeah. um to have seen jermaine greer beaten up by a lot of younger feminists I th- because she wasn't quite using the language that was current i think in a lot of this um between genders you often get a lot of assumptions of bad faith when both sides are trying to understand each other in the main. Obviously, there are idiot men and there are probably fewer. It's okay, there are idiot women. There are idiot women too when it comes to this debate. I'd Um, say there's more idiot men. Just kidding, just kidding. um, I I think I'd agree with you on that. (laughs) Certainly when it comes to navigating these extremely difficult and sensitive and long under-exposed and under-debated issues, that's important. I'd like to see, as Aisha knows well, because we do talk about this a lot on air and off air, I'd like to see uh, a little bit more leeway given to men who are trying hard to do and say the right thing and who are trying to understand but are maybe a little bit clumsy in female eyes, particularly with the language that they use, even when they're professional writers and broadcasters. 
But I do think it's a shame and I do think it's a disservice to the feminist cause when you do see women sort of intra-gender um, arguments really taking lumps out of each other. Some of the language that I've read, and I do have a look at mums occasionally, believe it or not, some of the abuse I've heard, seen hurled between between women over these issues has, has really been quite eye-watering. And it's a shame it's got to that. Of course, we need to work out all this stuff. Of course, it's good all this isn't in the closet as it used to be. Of course, it's great that the generation of women that Helen and you belong to, Aisha, and the generation of women that my two daughters will join are, are so much have so much more scope and license and ability to discuss these kind of issues. But uh, it does come down to language, and it does also come down to not immediately assuming bad faith, whether it's a clumsy man or a clumsy woman. And I think the I think the intra feminist war is is really interesting. I mean, women fighting each other on feminism is is never a particularly edifying sight. And actually, the only people that really do benefit from that, I'm afraid, is the patriarchy. Now, I'm actually writing a new stand up show called Girl on Girl: The Fight for for Feminism. But you, we do have to have these conversations. We can't just um, we can't just sort of ignore them. But I think the language is interesting. I, I watched the gender quake um, debate on Channel 4 and it wasn't as awful as I thought it was going to be, but it was quite it was quite an unedifying sight to sit there and watch people scream, penis, penis, at, you know, um, sort of transgender women and then other people just getting shouted down as well. And you sort of think there's surely got to be a better way of debating this. I thought the whole way that that gender quake debate was put together was very unfair on the participants involved, actually, because they were sat in the middle of it and everybody surrounding them and then they'd specifically invited activists on both sides. Yeah. And, and I think there were, you know, there were very unpleasant things said and then everybody immediately started getting into their defensiveness of kind of, you know, yeah one person has said this which is I mean in a way you kind of do it credit it very accurately recreated the experience of Twitter on television right which is just <laughs> people are having a conversation some one person yells something and then everyone everyone gets really offended about that one person and pretend, you know conflates the normal argument that someone else is making with the worst person on their side <laughs> that was very very Twitter I thought but uh, and also in the fact that you know Kathy Newman talked almost I think I was absolutely dominated by Caitlyn Jenner mm. and you know fair enough she's the celebrity she's there but she's not you know, she's not a clinician who's involved in this stuff. She's not somebody with a background in theory. She's somebody who, until about three years ago, was living as a man and with very and a Republican, a Trump supporter. You know, not somebody who was interested in this issue at all. It's purely by personal circumstance mm. that she's come to it. And therefore, I just, I sort of think, well, you, you can talk very eloquently about your own experiences, but what, you know, what I don't think she deserved to be get, you know, to be given the airtime that she she was on that. Well, this is all symptom of fact. We're we're living in a world where we no longer believe in experts, but but if you're a celebrity and you've been on uh, the Kardashians, then you can get full reign on any subject. You've got Kim Kardashian sort of pretty much in penal policy in the United States. Right. So there we go. There we go. Look, Helen, fantastically interesting topic. I think this is something Absolutely. that will definitely be uh, returning to um, a, a great deal. Um, Liam, onto your underreported story, please. So I'm an old Russia hand, as, as Aisha knows. I've lived in Russia for a few years in the 90s and in the 2000s. Um, uh, and I actually lived for three years with my family, about 200 metres from Luzhniki Stadium, the main stadium uh, where the World Cup's being held, which is also the stadium where the Soviet Union held the 1980 uh, Olympics. So let's never say that politics and sport aren't mixed. Um, and politics and sport are mixed in what I'm going to say now. There is, uh, and has been for quite a few years, a major undersea gas pipeline between 
Russia and Germany. It's called Nord Stream 1. It was very controversial when it was opened because it bypassed some of the traditional transit countries of Russian gas entering Western Europe. I can't really think of a subject more different from yours that we did decide independently. Yeah, I was just thinking, I was thinking you always get a diversity of stories on the Unheard podcast. And when it was uh, when it was opened, the then Polish Foreign Secretary Radek Sikorski, British educated Polish Foreign Secretary, called it the new Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact because it really bypassed the likes of Poland and marginalised them. Um, if you didn't have gas coming through Poland to Western Europe, then uh, Russia could, in his mind, cut off Eastern and Central Europe from gas without upsetting the more powerful Western European nations. Germany, of course, is massively behind Nord Stream 1. Gerhard Schroeder, who's been on the board of Gazprom, uh, the former German chancellor, is very close to Putin. Um, Germany likes the fact it has its own private pipeline uh, to Russia and so holds the cards. What we've seen this week, almost unreported in the mainstream press, is both Russia and Sweden, another geographically very important country when you're drilling, uh, laying pipelines across the Baltic Sea, approving Nord Stream 2. So this wasn't a fluke. Germany is increasing its economic ties with the Russians despite sanctions, uh, and the Russians have chosen this World Cup uh, run-up to announce that. The only country that now has to agree is Denmark. Um, Denmark is holding out, but we'll probably agree in the end. And I think what all this points to, uh, and this is a thing that we're going to be talking about a lot over the coming months, and even non-journalists who aren't football fans will end up thinking and maybe even writing about this, is that the Russians, and Putin in particular, I mean, he doesn't, he likes ice hockey and judo, right? He doesn't even like football. But he's making sure he is going to personally hand the World Cup to Lionel Messi or Ronaldo or whoever it is. Harry Kane, even. <laughs> don't jinx it. Don't jinx it. <laughs> I don't know much about football. Even I knew that was funny. <laughs> I, I, Aisha goes peak Scottish. No way. No way. <laughs> he's making sure he is front and centre in this World Cup. And the Russian government in general and their friends and the media were doing everything they can to convey the notion that despite sanctions, Russia still has enormous links with the rest of the world, massive, massive trade with Germany, increasing trade with China, um, still large trade with the UK. I mean, let's not forget that uh, BP owns a fifth of Rosneft, which is the largest oil company in the world. Enormous ties despite sanctions. And in when it comes to geopolitics, I think you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to understand that energy pipelines really are the skeleton upon which a lot of the meat of diplomacy and politics is hung. Uh, and a major new pipeline has just been agreed between the biggest and most powerful economy in Western Europe and Russia. So Germany yet again has taken a sledgehammer to any notion of unity when it comes to EU energy policy, almost unheard. Wow, there's so much to kind of unpack from that. I mean, great, <laughs> great story. So are you, is your kind of... Um, thesis that even though we sort of you know wave our finger at Russia we sort of put them on the kind of diplomatic naughty step in many many ways when it comes down to it even Germany is still prepared to do business with them 
Not even Germany. German. If you live and work in Russia, as I have over the years, the extent of German industry there is absolutely enormous. I mean, fans will be coming to Russia and they'll be traveling from Moscow to Nizhny Novgorod and elsewhere, St. Petersburg, on these new Sapsan trains made by Siemens. They'll be in buildings where the plasterboard is made by a German company called Knauf. The German Mittelstadt, the small and medium-sized German companies, there are tens of thousands of them trading with and operating in Russia. You have four full-cycle um, VW uh, factories in Russia. You have Liebherr, which is an enormous German uh, refrigeration and sort of they make building vehicles, cranes and so on. So the the, the Germans and the Russians are very, very uh, uh, close economically. And East Germany has allowed the German and the economy, Russian economies to kind of tessellate. And it meant that Germany always had very close links with the Soviet Union, and that's trans translated. Even though, over you know, obviously, there's a lot of cultural suspicion of Germany uh, mm. in in Russia, given how many you know 25 million people were lost in the Second World War from the Soviet Union. But all that's been overcome, and Germany's become an enormous trading partner. I would um, absolutely love to know when Putin and Merkel are alone together. Is that when they, and the subject of Trump comes up? Whether there is even a whisper of a glance between them of. That guy is an idiot. Well, what's interesting... She speaks Russian, doesn't she? That's having grown that, up you're in exactly Germany. right, Helen. What's interesting is that um, um, I, know, I know quite a lot of the German diplomatic corps in, in Moscow, um, having lived there a while through personal connections as well. And when, um, yes, uh, Putin speaks good German and Merkel speaks good Russian. And how do they get on? But, what's their uh, and relationship and, and, like? And they sometimes get together with just a single translator on each side uh, and they only use those translators when they really need to if there's a specific but he brought word. dogs into the room one of the times they met to he be did a, do, to be a dick no, knowing knowing that she doesn't like dogs, dogs. and then afterwards she, she gave him why would you do that because he's a, being a bit of a dick like, that's, <laughs> have you seen them like topless hang gliding what a horrible man but, and then she gave a great magnificently like Merkel put down afterwards it's like sometimes people need to show they are the big man <laughs> <laughs> I love it she stood there in her in her, in her trouser suit exactly in her <laughs> wasn't that stare she gave Trump at the G7 absolutely brilliant oh, that, that Baroque oil painting it was, or, or whatever it was but doesn't all of this um, just show that all this kind of diplomatic sort of tough talk saying Russia you know you've you've done terrible behaviour whether it's interference whether you know whatever in terms of possible assassinations on, on foreign soils doesn't this all make a mockery of that when actually people are still prepared to do a lot of business um, with Russia no I don't think it makes a mockery I think there's a balance I think there's a balance obviously the big political stuff the disgrace of Novichok in Salisbury. They, um, uh, Germany uh, uh, expelled diplomats, didn't it? It joined it, Britain it, in expelling it, diplomats. It, it, it after did. Salisbury. It did. It did. But also the actual joint communique that May very skillfully, I thought, got. It's probably her best week ever as Prime yeah. Minister. Got together of uh, and UK, that was Macron as well. EU, in France? Macron. If you actually read the communique all the way to the bottom, there were some Weasley words in yes. there. The headline was yes. good, but after the second par, of course, no journalist reads past yeah. the second par, right? After the second par, it did get quite flabby, and yeah. there's lots of wiggle room in there. I don't think it makes a mockery of it, Aisha, because in the end, there's high politics and mudslinging and um, posturing. And then there's commerce. And of course, the two are related. And it's absolutely right that they are related. And of course, you get to a point with the country where you just ban all commerce. But until you get to that point, there are enormous vested interests pushing in the other direction from both sides. As I said, you know, 
the only world-class energy company that we have in this country owns a fifth BP, of, of the yeah. world's biggest oil company, which is itself majority owned by the Russian state. So if it was that bad, and, and, and in, in related to that, a lot of British people have, whether they know it or not, their pension funds in those companies, so massively exposed to that part of the Russian economy. I think it's a very, very big step to completely ban commerce with a country, particularly when it's a country that is relatively near geographically and where you have historically had so many ties. Clearly, sanctions have put the mockers on UK-Russia trade to some degree, but they've put the mockers a lot less on uh, Russia-US trade uh, and also on Russia-Germany trade. The end of the day, money talks, doesn't it? At the end of the day. Um, Right, thanks so much for that, Liam. Really, really interesting and very significant underreported story and definitely one to watch in the ever-shifting world of geopolitics. We're now coming on to my favourite section of the show, which um, are heroes and villains. We're going to start with you, Helen, your villain of the week. Well, it's related to what you're just saying, actually, which is I think that we we know that the World Cup is starting this week in Russia. Russia has got a bad human right, never mind the fact that it almost certainly poisoned somebody on British soil, well, two people on British soil. Um, you know, it's... Uh, Where's um, the evidence? Where the evidence just... Yeah, just exactly. Just... Um, you know, it's it's got very strong anti-gay laws, for example. Um, it's got a kind of souped-up version of Section 28, for example. It's got a criminal offence of... Uh, what is it? It's criminal separatism, which is if you say that Crimea is actually part of Ukraine, then you can be prosecuted and people have been prosecuted wow. for that it is you know it is an authoritarian repressive regime with a very questionable human rights record um, and yet I somehow think that the kind of men who spend quite a lot of time telling me how I'm doing feminism wrong and giving me pious little lectures on stuff like gender that we talked about earlier because it's football kind of football sweeps everything aside I don't know I mean Liam you're more of a football fan than I am it's not a hard thing to be but are you su- I know the ball is round yeah <laughs> two goals I believe uh, 11 People and um, a little man in black called the ref. <laughs> what does LBW mean in, in football? <laughs> but I mean, I, you know, there's been a few pipsqueaks of people saying that they're a bit uneasy about going over there and covering it. But as you say, you know, Putin will be there, like smiling next to the trophy. It's for him in terms soft power terms. It puts him on in the same way that you know Kim Jong Un must yeah. have been delighted to have Trump come over and, and yeah. do all the photo ops. Are you surprised how little everyone's just gone, well, it's football, so everything about, you know, we love football, don't make us hate the thing that we love, we don't want to, you know, there are no serious kind of calls about boycotting it or anything like that, no, It's really. kind of binary, though, isn't it? Because to, to boycott it is an absolutely enormous step. Mm. And again, the financial vested interest... In it kind of loops back in, to what enormous. we were talking about yeah. before. But then if you don't go, then people who are upset could say... Well, this is an outrage. So. I guess Scotland are boycotting it. Yeah, we've taken a very principled stance, I think but, you'll find. Um, I mean, we could have totally gone in and won that, but we thought, <laughs> no, we're going to put some principles in action here. Thanks very much. Like you won in Argentina. Exactly. <laughs> Ali's army. <laughs> Home before your postcards. Yeah. <laughs> That's the phrase. I've, I, so I, I was living in Russia as... Um, the Soviet Union um, in the immediate post-Soviet years. And I remember, actually, when in 1993, homosexuality was legalised in Russia. It was in 1993. um, But the Yeltsin government didn't actually announce it. Um, So I was a young academic researcher, and I knew a lot of young Russian men, and one or two of them were gay. I also knew some gay Western men who were living in Russia at the time. And so... I ended up talking a lot about this subject uh, in situ and the police didn't announce that they decriminalised homosexuality. They just stopped hassling 
mm. um, uh, people going to gay clubs and then and then gradually stopped arresting them. Um, but of course, the thing about modern Russia is that it's a very conservative place. Uh, there's a very high um, incident, the, the church is very, very important to many, many people, particularly older people. The way, one way to try and understand it is that, you know, we had the 40s and the 50s in this country and, and our attitudes back then mm. um, were uh, pretty alarming to people of, of our respective generations. Uh, Russia had the 40s and 50s too. It didn't really have a 60s and a 70s and an 80s because it was locked in the Soviet Union. And it was like hermetically sealed culturally, economically uh, and psychologically. I think it's very fascinating. I went to Finland last year, so I went to Helsinki, and which is only, what, a couple, I was going to say, about 100 miles away from St. Petersburg. It's really not yeah. that far, is yeah, it? Like, yeah, absolutely. And actually they both look, both together in terms of their architecture, these big wide boulevards and these massive imposing buildings. But the difference between them culturally is so obvious, just in the terms of the lifestyles of people, what the, what, you know, what the yeah. street life feels like. Indeed. You do get the sense of just... Do you do you feel Helen that you know whenever you have the the football on? I mean, there's obviously it's such a huge event. People love it. There's no question about that. But do you think there should be more of a conversation about the 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 other downsides? Like for example, whenever there's a massive football competition, there's a massive influx of trafficked women for prostitution and things like that. But we never ever have a discussion about that. No, and I think that's one of the things that annoys me. And I know we were saying earlier we shouldn't be mean to men, and I agree with that. I do agree with you on no, that. No, you that can actually, be mean no, to you. Le- should be mean to them if they deserve to, to be mean. Be mean but to them if they deserve it. Well, yeah, and I think there is. A, I don't a free pass. <laughs> no, but uh, I agree with you. There is a kind good. of snappishness about about maybe because because you because someone has asked you the same idiot question several hundred times, right? You don't know that it's their first time asking, it and yeah. they do actually genuinely want to know. So that's I think a good point. That is a really difficult kind of thing to navigate. But one of the things I find is very difficult is, is yeah, men who get involved in feminist discussions online, right up until the moment, it involves them not doing something that they want to do, or you know, like, you know what I mean. In the kind of sense, they love egging on women to have a discussion about. I don't know. Like, yeah, I think sex work is a really good example of that. And then you go, well, of course, the thing is, if there was no demand, then then we wouldn't have this problem. And then it's suddenly like tumbleweed rolls or across. Then, the- or, or else the other argument, and look, we don't want to go down a sort of cul-de-sac sex work is a, a great discussion for another time. But the argument that's often thrown back to you as a feminist for raising it is, well, what about the choice of these women that, that want to do it, even though quite a lot of them will be trafficked and it won't be a choice for them. Yeah. But anyway, very, very, uh, very uh, worthy villain and actually villain. I agree with you, Helen. I'm with you. Uh, quickly, Liam, you're a hero of the week. Uh, again, it couldn't really be more different from Helen by accident, not my, not by design. So um, I've chosen Sainsbury's as my hero of the week. And the reason is that uh, Sainsbury's have introduced new relaxed checkout lanes uh, for elderly people, uh, designed specifically for people who are in who are suffering from dementia, obviously, there is a, a much bigger debate now about mental health in this country. It's no longer, again, the, the taboo that it was. That's got to be a good thing. Uh, the incidence of it is very high and rising. Uh, we've had a whole wall of pressure from retailers in recent years. You know, we're now our own checkout people. I mean, I go to Boots and, and you know, I'm, I'm confused. How do I get out of here without being arrested? What do I do? I need a sort of PhD in rocket science to check out my... 
whatever it is I happen to be buying in Boots. Don't look at me like that, Aisha. <laughs> Not seeing anything. <laughs> your meal deal. I think it's Say probably meal deal. Meal deal. No, the it's, it's hair products. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be hair products. Look, look at I, it. Look I at I never that use. I never use shampoo. You know this. I never use shampoo. <laughs> Helen's feet. Again, you, this is not working for a podcast, but Helen's face is brilliant right now. <laughs> really learn something new every day. I think this is a really good one to pick, actually, because actually, it's it's something that's happening across lots of different sectors, lots of different ways. So cinemas now do parent and baby screenings, right? Which is good because obviously yeah. the most irritating. You know, if you're if you've got a young baby, then God knows you want to get out of the house sometimes. But also, you don't want the death stares of everybody else as your you know, kids start screaming in the middle of a film. Um, Theatres now do relaxed performances of plays for particularly for people with autism, actually. Mm. And they say, you know, you can get up, you can move around if you need. If anybody you might need, they keep the house lights up. If you want to go to the loo in the middle of it, you can. And I think we're coming a bit more accommodating about the fact that not everybody can. You know, modern life is so hectic and so fast-paced and so automated. You know, like the bank teller has been taken out, the checkout worker has been taken out, all those people who would have probably helped the slightly slower people or the people who need a bit more um, assistance have all kind of gone. So it's a lot less friendly to people who need that. And so we need to restart building that back yeah. into systems. I think that's a great story. And so often companies will think, oh, if we keep a checkout um, people, if we, if we still have bank tellers, it's going to cost us money, we must automate, we must lower costs. But this is something where, you know, clearly there's going to be a, a little bit less traffic and a little bit throughput in in the, the the slow lane if you like of Sainsbury's but they're getting a fantastic media hit out of this and they deserve that media hit but also and and you know I will say to you know, f- friends with elderly parents and my parents as they get a bit slower, why don't you go to Sainsbury's? Because it's you're just gonna be a bit more relaxed. But I and think they'll end up getting more business. You know, as we evolve as a society, organisations, shops, every little bit of society should have more due regard for the differences, particularly with older people. I remember Joan Beakwell um, once did this really interesting interview where she said she's trying to park her car and there was like a, a, a sign about how you have to use your mobile phone to kind of like... Oh, you pay your parking pay ticket in advance, yeah. And of course the right, just the font was so small. She was like, you know, she pretty much needs a magnifying glass. So, you know, if you're an older person yeah. trying to sort of do that, and I think we do as a society, you know, if we want our older people, and older people much more active into their elderly Absolutely. years, and we want them to be more active. I love what Sainsbury's have done, yeah, Liam. I'm so glad you picked this. And also, I'll be in that aisle because I often start get and I think, oh, I've forgotten the milk and I need to run back. And so you should the- be in that aisle. People like you. <laughs> I'm in that aisle. Don't judge me, Helen. I, Helen is so judgy. Don't I agree judge with you. Me. The whole about the t- one. Um, I've got a friend who's writing a book about the gender data gap at the moment and the way that urban planning is all done around a standard and who that standard is. So, for example, the very trendy thing in restaurants about having, um, you know, like wood floors and no tablecloths. That makes the acoustics a bit really bad because all the, what you know as anyone who That's does right. radio will know is that you know fabric soaks up sound as you get older you lose the ability your hearing gets less acute one of the particular things that's a problem is you lose the ability to tune into conversations and it all becomes just one wall of noise so those restaurants are explicitly designed for younger people they are they are ageist in their I design l- i love that can i just make one other plea can we have just food on proper plates just not sleets <laughs> It's just that's All just right, a grump, grumpy old Aisha. Oh, right, Helen, it's my <laughs> podcast. I can gripe about what I want. Okay, finally, young people today. <laughs> yeah, the, the, she the, needs a plate with her sloppy haggis. <laughs> the youth, the youth. I know I'm like Jean with, Brody. I'm like with the their avocados. I know and a, their skinny jeans. Her tatties and her neeps. <laughs> avocados that used to be a toilet and back in the day used to be a bathroom suite, not a breakfast. Um, right now we're just going to do. I know in we do try and not talk about the B word uh, but I'm afraid we're going to have to just go there very quickly because my sort of villain of the week not mainly just because it's happening but just how it's all been handled is the B word 
Brexit. So we've had these huge votes uh, in the House of Commons. I think we've ended up in an incredible situation where both the Prime Minister has had an absolutely terrible week. Normally, the leader of the opposition would be having a triumphal, uh, triumphant week, but he's also had a really terrible week uh, being uh, defeated on his own uh, amendments and amendments from the Lord. So my, my villain of the week is Brexit, because I think we have now got ourselves into such a tangled mess on Brexit. Whether you're a Remainer or whether you're a Brexiteer, I think the one thing that unites us all is that nobody is very happy with how Brexit is um, going. And uh, well, polling I, backs you up on that. I mean, there yeah. was a YouGov poll that said, I think 73% of people think Brexit's going badly, and that's split like 83% of Remainers and then 71% of Leavers. So I don't think it's a... Yeah, we don't need to refight the referendum. Please don't let's refight the referendum. No, but there tired. is genuinely a, a point about the fact that, you know, we triggered Article 50 way too early before we had any clue what we were going on. And that's not something that is, a, again, really a partisan point. Jeremy Corbyn, I think, wanted to trigger it the day after oh, the yep, referendum. Yep, so yep. Um, I wouldn't give him any credit on that one either. But yeah, I think there is a, I think there is a real issue that it has just completely overtaken all of other politics. You know, uh, the domestic abuse bill is about the only other thing that we're a you know, big piece of legislation that anyone's waiting for in this parliamentary session, which is going on until next year. They're giving themselves two years to do this, and I don't think anyone could look around the state of the country at the moment and think, yeah, everything else is just tickety boo. We should definitely <sighs> just only focus on Brexit. No, I could, absolutely. I mean, I even got a nice message from the Bruges group who are like extreme Brexiteers going, Aisha, for once we agree with you on your analysis. And I think one of the things that I I'll find... I'll send you some blazer buttons. <laughs> <laughs> some <deck> shoes. <laughs> I'm, look, I'm ready. I'm good. I'm, I'm ready for them. You'll be in the steward's enclosure <laughs> at Henley. Oh, it's all good. Where's the down? Where's the down? But I mean, one of the things I find so frustrating is, you know, whatever happens with the Brexit stuff, is the paralysis. And for example, some of the really, really big issues we need to be sorted out. Take housing, for example. None of this stuff is... No one has the bandwidth to, to deal with it. Now, Liam, you are a, a proud Brexiteer, author of Clean Brexit. W- where do you think we are? Well, I agree with both of you that the Brexit sucking the life out of the rest of the domestic agenda. Um, Sajid Javid's managed to sort of punch through in recent days talking about immigration, but we should be having big announcements and draft legislation and, and primary legislation on many of these aspects of our national life that we will be deciding for ourselves uh, after Brexit, be it um, uh, 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 immigration policy, be it regional policy, be it free ports, be it deciding our own rates of VAT and all these things. The focus, I think, should be on not so much the process of Brexit, but what Brexit means and the destination. But of course, we're all fixated on the process because the process has been uh, thrown up in the air by the fact that the government's got no majority and this was always going to be the way ever since we heard the outcome of the election in June 2017. It's not surprising that both parts, both main parties are having a complete nervous breakdown about Brexit. Um, The Labour Party in particular is deeply split. You've got the sort of proto-Blairites on the one hand, then you've got people like Caroline Flint, Frank Field, Kate Hoey on the other and you've got a lot of sort of silent Labour backbenchers that I've talked to in recent months who are really concerned uh, about defying their own local electorates, particularly on uh, the issue of immigration, um, which is why the EEA uh, amendment has been so divisive 
on the Labour side. And you've got the, the kind of vice versa. Yeah, and then you've got the vice Twitter, versa within Justine, the same rebellion. Yeah, yeah, and Justin Greening and Putney and people like yeah. that, you know, they must be very afraid of their Remain voting constituents. Sure, sure, sure. But my point, I, OK, so I'm not a, a Brexiteer. Could it have been different? That's the thing. Um, I, I feel like the whole enterprise was just... I mean, we were uniquely way, I think, ill-equipped I, 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 to do I think something I, like this. The point I was going to make is that it's no wonder that the party politics and parliament can't cope with Brexit, but that's why we had a referendum. We had a referendum to get this out of Parliament and to a national plebiscite and Parliament voted six to one for the referendum, which but, is why I personally but, but Liam, I which want is to... why I personally think um I'm not gonna I'm not gonna um predict civic unrest, but I do think if we don't deliver on this and I don't think I don't think there's any such thing as soft Brexit. I think soft Brexit but, is soft if I can just finish my yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. I think soft Brexit is sophistry to stay in either of the main legal constructs of the European Union, the customs union, which was the essence of the European Union when it began in 1957, the single market, which is the essence of the European Union since it began in 1992, isn't Brexit. And if we don't deliver it, then I'm not saying there'll be civic unrest. And if it is seen to be stopped by a metropolitan elite and unelected lords, then I think you'll have an awful lot of people who never vote again. Well... First of all, I just wanted, one of the things I just wanted to pick up on what you sort of said was that, you know, we gave it to the people to sort of decide to take out of Parliament. The truth is, the reason it was it was given to, as a referendum was because Cameron was feeling a lot of heat. Also, Cameron um, was feeling lucky. Well, yeah, yeah, he definitely <laughs> he was feeling very hubristic and very, very lucky. And, you know, he was under a lot of pressure from, from UKIP. And Who just won 13% of the national vote in the... Yeah, but he was... And they won 27% was, of the vote fe- yeah, in the European... They, you don't was, like them and I don't no, like no, them, no. but they won a lot of votes. But the idea that we were kind of doing this to, to take it away from Parliament, I don't think that's quite... I don't. Think, in my opinion, so why, Liam, so why did parliamentarians vote 6 to 1 and in the Lords... They voted the referendum bill through very strongly no, as well. which I think negates the argument from mm. people on your side saying, oh, Parliament would just defeat Brexit. They wouldn't. They've already voted twice that Brexit is going to happen. You have a leader of the opposition. Yeah, yeah, but you're assuming that you're, you've you're, got you're a leader, assuming you can, you've got, you can have Brexit while staying in either the single market no, or the customs union. No, you've, you've misinterpreted. You don't know what I think on that. I think, actually, Jeremy Corbyn, I think, personally, is actually kind of correct on this. I think mm. probably we do need to... Leave the single market. I do think, and the customs union. I think we should be staying in the customs union. Yeah, I'm I think it's, well, customs union is where you leave me because I, I have yeah. misinterpreted then because I no, don't you think said, you can you stay said, in the EU you said if you if you stay in the single market union. and customs union. I'm saying half of that is correct. I think I think is. But anyway, let's not get into. A, a but I'd like a, to. I'd like to hear people in your position actually elucidate why you think being in the customs union is a good idea because we don't violate the good friday agreement and we don't but put that's a hard complete border. nonsense you can it's you, not you, complete you, nonsense. You, you can you can you can solve the northern ireland border no you can't how with... do you solve with like <laughs> mysterious like blimps on the border because now cody who's the head of borders in ireland and john thompson who's the similar in the uk have both said and eu studies themselves have both said that you can Use technology and what technology behind behind. <laughs> We're so good at technology in this country. Liam always says you've got to be. No, the, the, <laughs> the, the, the idea. I'm just being asked to we're hurry so, up, and then I'm being asked very complicated questions. So, I can't do both. So, you, you can, you can multitask. You're a man. Yeah. Learn it. No, I have learned it. <laughs> Too busy parking. I, I yeah, can't, exactly. I can't in, in, go in a long explanation when I'm being but asked look, to look, stop talking. Okay, okay. What? I mean, I don't want us to get into like a rerunning the rouse of the... But let, we can both agree, both sides can agree, this is an absolute mess and we've got to try and find a way through it. Given 
that everyone is still so divided over Brexit. All the political parties are divided over Brexit. The country's divided over breakfast. Bre- breakfast, no, breakfast, breakfast, breakfast. But also, given that Parliament has actually voted to make Brexit happen twice, and Jeremy Corbyn has said that he wants Brexit to happen, what about an idea of actually Parliament having a bit more say? What about a bit more cross-party working? What do we think about that as an idea to be resurrected? Maybe uh, Keir Starmer should join David Davis and try and get a bit of you know national interest going. I think that'd be great for the country. I also think if you're the Labour Party and you sign up to that, you need your head examined. Why would you not? Why would you get any you know give any part of this incredible unfolding mess that otherwise will be laid entirely at the government's door? I just don't think the amount of kind of control you would have in that process is Keir Starmer. Given that the cabinet can't even agree and they're all allegedly in the same party, you know what influence you manage to get in return for the huge, you know, electoral uh, whapping you get at the end of it. Helen, don't you think that Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party are already seen as being complicit in this because they're not voting against the government? Well, Jeremy, as you say, Jeremy Corbyn has ended up in a, 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 a position that is entirely in tune with his views. He's a you know an ideological Eurosceptic. But he's so he is. He, I think he's probably more Eurosceptic than Theresa May in a sort of weird. Definitely. Yeah. You know, I mean, it um, kind of actually reminded me of the welfare bill a bit. Oh no, 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 don't. You know, but in, in the sense bill. that no, no, obviously it's been that was three that years was, no, no, the Oh my god, tell me about it, <laughs> mate. Tell me about. It. But, you know, it's, it is quite weird that kind of Corbyn in some ways is sort of going along with the government. So maybe actually a sort of coming together could be the right thing to do. Liam? Well, Corbyn's private polling is telling him that outside the sort of metropolitan elite bubble, Brexit is popular with lots and lots of Labour voters and lots of other Labour voters just want people to get on with it. Yes, there are polls saying that the country thinks it's a mess. They think the politicians are making a mess of it. And the political class as a whole, of which we're all members, and many of our friends will be uh, eviscerated by the electorate if we don't stop bickering and actually move forward with this. So, do you think this um, cross-party but, but I think, idea? I think, I think the, I think, I think the cross-party bit should be, you know, we should be focusing on on setting our own laws for everything that we will decide after Brexit, like on immigration, like on our, our patent law, like on VAT, like on everything that we can't do because we're What do, do you think about the, the idea Union. of, let's say, for example, reaching the handout to the Labour Party, maybe even invite, like the, SM, to the devolved assemblies, just to have a little bit more cross-party working on Brexit? In, well, I, don't, in a I think Helen's right. I don't think through. the Labour Party will do it. I think the country's impression for the sort of non-aligned floating voters is Labour will do or say anything it but, can but to the, upset, the, upset the process. What about the offer being made? You guys stood on an election manifesto of being outside the single market and kind of outside the customs union, and all that's now been thrown away if but it's Liam, politically But Liam, I'm asking the question, not, not about Labour, what do you think about the mm. government making the offer? Do you think that would be a good idea? Not just to not just to Labour, but the SNP, you know, had a big row with the SNP... Northern. What about just the government making the offer? Not, not a sort of. I mean, I know what you think about the Labour Party, but this is the the, the government. Well, I don't think that about the Labour Party in general. I do on this issue. I yeah, think history will show they've what, been extremely opportunistic. I get your message. What do you think about the well, government again, reaching out? Again, you're going out? to deride me, but what my book does with Gerard Lyons, there's a whole section on how we could have cross-party cooperation in the negotiations. But I think that time has passed because okay. I think I think we've shown such a lack of national purpose in this that's what the public wants very few members of the public are members of political parties or even tribal voters they want politicians to to not you know stitch up the national interest okay so you think the time has passed for some cross-party working i do but i think cross-party should be efforts should be focused on trying to build the post-brexit economy and society that we'll be able to once we've left 
Well, sadly, not much consensus on the idea of cross-party working from our panellists today. But thanks so much to both Liam and Helen for what has been a stimulating and spirited and very diverse set um, of topics. You've been listening to the Unheard Weekly podcast. I'm Aisha Hazarika. Please join me again next week. Thank you.